Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and today I will be speaking with Dr. Alan Slomovic. Dr. Slomovic is an ophthalmologist, and he has a number of titles, which I'll let him explain in a moment. So, Dr. Slomovic, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, you have a you have a lot of titles um, with your research background, with clinical background um, in corneal external disease, um, with leadership positions. Maybe you could share a few of those titles and uh, maybe what some of those uh, roles involve. Sure, with pleasure. So I'm very fortunate in that I received an endowed chair, the Marta and Owen Boris endowed chair in uh, ocular stem cell research. I'm also a full professor of ophthalmology at the University of Toronto and a visiting professor uh, at, in Tel Aviv University. I'm vice chair of education and professional continuing professional development at the University of Toronto. And I'm also clinical chair of the cornea service at the University Health Network. That's a lot of hats that you have to wear. And we're gonna, I'm gonna circle back to the idea of wearing lots of hats later in the in the episode, but um, I was actually going to kick this off uh, with something we were talking about before we started recording, uh, which is COVID, and it's something that you have had firsthand experience with uh, recently. Um, so maybe before we dive into, you know, your professional background and objective, objectives and whatnot, if you could maybe just, if you're willing to share that uh, personal story with COVID with the audience. Sure, Sean. It's, um, you know, it's, it was an unfortunate episode. Fortunately, I was doubly vaccinated and still got a breakthrough Delta variant um, and probably one of the worst flus in my life, but I'm, I'm grateful that it wasn't worse. But, you know, it's scary when you're going into this because you're not, COVID is so variable. You're not sure where this is going to land for you or your family. And it's, it's taught me a couple of important lessons that I hope I'm going to be able to um, come back to them, and because I think they're important, um, come back to them in my own life and remember them, and not let them just be fleeting moments. I think one of the most important things is it's taught me that life is finite, and it, it you one really needs to choose what's important to me. And I, it, you know, for me, it's my family, my patients, my love of learning. And it's also taught me that life is finite and it's important to let the loved ones who you love know what they mean to you because you may not get a second chance. <clears throat> I also think in some way that probably every doctor should be a patient at some time. I think it gives you um, the ability to understand how important compassion and empathy is on behalf of the doctor who's giving the health care. You know, I learned so much from uh, a, a young emergency doc who was looking after my wife, who was significantly feeling worse than I was, in the way she gave over difficult to hear information about the unpredictability of the virus and the possibility for it to be severe. And she gave it over honestly compassionately and truthfully. And it just made it so much easier to, to accept. And I, in this way, I think it, you know, being a patient teaches us so much about 
um, the art of medicine. No, I think that's a, you know, a nice, um, you know, a piece, piece to share. And, you know, I'm assuming in, in your case where, um, when it wasn't just you, it was other members of the family who were affected, um, you know, not only does it strike some fear in, to you to think, okay, my own health, but you probably immediately start thinking about, oh my goodness, you know, family members. And, you know, as a doctor, you've uh, probably been closer, even, you know, you're an ophthalmologist, but you've still been closer to a lot of, um, I guess, the good and the bad of COVID uh, working in the, in the hospital setting than the average person. So I'm assuming that, uh, you know, having a family member touched by that um, is probably quite, uh, quite scary. It was very scary. And um, I, I think, thank God we're all coming out of it now, but, you know, going into it, you're not exactly sure where you're going to land. And um, I think it just, that vulnerability, it's important to remember that. And it's important to remember that your patients experience that every day. We forget about that when we're practicing, but um, I think it's important to, to remember that and to keep that in your mind when you're speaking to patients. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, no, that's, it's good. I'm glad you, you shared that. Um, it just, I had a, a recent injury a few weeks back um, that led to my transport via ambulance to the hospital. And, you know, I've always, uh, you know, told my wife, oh, you know, don't worry about me. I'll be fine. And, you know, whatever. But um, that day when the, they, you know, had the heart monitor on me and um, the leads on me and put me into the ambulance, take me away, my daughter, I have three kids and my daughter was just losing it, crying. And it just kind of hit home to me at that moment too, just how, you know, how fragile everything is and really what, what, uh, what is important. Right. So, um, no. Okay. So listen, I, I think we can, you know, we could probably talk about this topic for, for an hour um, and probably, you know, back and forth on, on, um, you know, personal stories and whatnot. Um, I wanted to also dive into um, something that happened 20 years ago. And that was just take it back in time a little bit to so test your memory. Um, you know, back in 2001, you were awarded a mentor of the year award by the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. And so on top of everything else you do, um, the powers that be thought you were the greatest person in Canada, I guess, that year as a, as a mentor in this space. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit, you know, what that uh, what that award meant to you? Uh, it meant everything. Um, it was when I was program director and here I was, I thought I was a, um, a pretty strict program director. And yet my, my students, one of them put me up and it was supported by the other residents and faculty um, to make me mentor the year. And I, I, I think that um, to me, it's very important because it, it, it not only affects not only talks to about the ability to teach the science of medicine, but it, it's the effect that you're having on the future generation of physicians. And this effect is not linear, it's exponential. In other words, you have an effect on one other person. They have an effect on two other people, though they have an effect on four other people. So if you could, if you could generate positive energy in the universe, um, and, and watch that multiply exponentially, that's tremendous. It, it, it also is very humbling for me to know that this was 
you know, it was not, it was appreciated. It was not just the teaching or the science that was coming across, but I, I think it was also the way we need to be as human beings. We need to value our patients. We need to value our relationships. We need to value our family. And, um, you know, I've, I've always tried to put forward the, the idea that it's important to teach not just the science of medicine, but also the art of medicine. And that really speaks to the bedside manner. We can't always heal somebody, but we can always comfort them. Um, so I, I think that's a really important concept. And, and I learned that. I learned that from the emergency doc who looked after my wife, who didn't promise she was going to heal my wife, but she promised she would take good care of her. I think that's, you know, a, a good point um, for sure. But I also wanted to, like, you've learned that from others as well in your past, I'm sure. I don't Absolutely. think that too many people, I, I could be wrong, but I feel like you are a mentor who is part of a line of mentors. And um, you probably learned some of those um, skills and just that way of being from others. If uh, I'm, I'm guessing, but I don't know if you have any mentors that you've had in the past that come to mind who, uh, who really stood out um, at one point in your life or another. Absolutely. You know, I'll start with, uh, with my wife, um, selfless devotion, a taste for beauty in life. I mean, this is what I learned from people. What, 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 what are the, you know, the, the strong character, what are the strong characteristics that, um, that I've taken from them? So I, I think, you know, from Rona, my wife, it's selfless devotion, a taste for beauty in life and how to make somebody's life more beautiful. Um, she's the calm one in the relationship and uh, um, always trying to improve herself um, on, you know, we, we start from our immediate family and that those are the mentors that I've taken examples from. I have an older brother and, you know, he's someone who, if I was ever in a foxhole, that would be the person I'd, I'd want to be with. Um, I guess my mentorship on a professional basis probably dates back to my um, original fellowship director, Richard Parrish. He's now the editor-in-chief, I believe, of, it's of the American Journal of Ophthalmology and um, from Miami, and just kindness, um, rational thinking, always you know, putting patient care first. Um, so I, I, I don't know how much further you want to go on, but I have several people who I've had a chance. Thank you for sending the questions. I've had a chance to think about who are the people who are shaping my life and my beliefs. Um, I'd have to say my former chief, who I worked very closely with when I was program director, Graham Trope. He's taught me about compassion, leadership, um, my current chief, Sharif Eldafrawi, he's an amazing leader, wonderful vision, um, balanced approach to things, a wonderful politician who really has got great vision for the department and has the political acumen to, to bring this about. I, I could keep going on, but um, I think I'll leave it at that for now. No, and that's fair. Um, I love how you mentioned your wife first and foremost, because I think you and I, uh, it sounds like we 
have that in common is that we both married up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Mary, there you go. So women that make us better men. So, um, so I wanted to touch a little bit on what your field of expertise uh, or one of your fields yeah. of expertise, yeah. which is of course, corneal external disease. And I don't want to do a, a deep dive on this because I feel like, you know, we could do a three hour episode just on that. But I was wondering if you could just comment on some of the more common uh, corneal and external diseases um, sure. And maybe, you know, where the, where the state of research and clinical practice is for the, uh, for the various diseases. Sure. I'll, I'll try and give you the view from 10,000 feet, because you're right. If we did a deep dive, we wouldn't finish this for a couple of hours. And let me, um, I think in one, one of the, you know, there's been tremendous changes in ophthalmology in all of the subspecialty areas. The one that I'm most competent to talk about, I think is cornea and corneal transplantation and stem cell disease, um, there's, you know, huge changes, all for the better. Um, the main difference, and I'll start with corneal transplantation. Um, corneal transplantation, when there was a problem with the cornea in the past, we would remove full thickness cornea and replace it. So we would take out from the diseased cornea eye, uh, part of the corneal tissue about the size of a dime round in shape and replace it with a full thickness donor cornea. So what's happened over the last couple of decades is we've been selectively removing just the disease part of the cornea uh, and replacing just that. So we've gone to, this is the ability to do that has allowed us to go through smaller and smaller incisions to the point where we went from 24 incisions with penetrating keratoplasty now to either one or no, uh, 24 sutures with penetrating keratoplasty, now to either no stitches or one stitch. It could be a self-sealing wound. And the implications of that is that instead of recovery of vision taking years, it now takes weeks to day, days to weeks. The complication rate is much lower. Um, and the visual recovery is so much better and so much faster. So that's corneal transplantation. Um, another area is stem cell transplants. And I'm, you know, this is an area I'm passionate about. This is what I got my endowed chair in. Um, and this is limbal stem cell transplants. And I think when we started a couple of, certainly over a decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, one of the first things I did was to uh, make an alliance with Dr. Ed Cole, who was then the chief of medicine and the head of the renal transplant service. So we work in conjunction with the renal transplant service. Um, and I think we're the only department in Canada that's, and as a result, I think it's allowed us to really uh, make some very important um, improvements in the stem cell program. Um, I made it very comprehensive. And um, I think we built up the, certainly if not the best, but one of the best stem cell programs in Canada as a result of this. So I'm very grateful to Ed Cole and the Renal Transplant Service for uh, collaborating with us, um, putting patient care first, and that's our stem cell patients. Um, another area that I'm interested in is ocular surface disease. Um, and this is something that 
in, I mean, in some cases it will, but in most cases it won't cause patients to go blind, but it can have a dramatic uh, negative impact on their quality of life, their ability to work and their ability to enjoy their lives. And um, so I've been very involved with this over the past, I would say couple of years. This is probably my most recent um, area of, of real interest. And a lot of this is, is dealing with uh, taking the patient's own blood and using that to try to nourish the ocular surface of their eye. Um, I wouldn't say it's 100% successful, but it, it's probably the most successful treatment that we have so far um, for making for trying to improve the quality of life of these individuals. Um, another area, going back to stem cell, I actually went to India uh, about seven or eight years ago to learn how to do this. Uh, it's a limited stem cell transplantation and it's called simple lymphoepithelial transplant, very effective surgical technique. <laughs> and I had to actually go to India to learn it. So it's, uh, um, do you have any questions basically? Did I? Oh yeah, no, I have, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I didn't want to- Please, fire away, I'm happy yeah, to okay. so, my, so my first thing is uh, on the ocular surface treatment and using a patient's blood, so what is it in the blood that you are trying to leverage, I guess, to, um, to improve the ocular surface condition? Sure. So a large part of what we are treating here is dry eye or neuropathic pain. Um, and, you know, this, this affects a large uh, percentage of the population, and it tends to affect women uh, postmenopausal women a lot more than it, than it does men. The traditional treatment, I mean, people have been treating this back until the ancient times when they were using goose fat to, to put it on the eye to try to um, comfort the eye. Um, more recently, like in the last uh, 50 years, we've been using artificial tears. The, the issue with tears is you, and, and the difference between tears and the patient's own blood is you can't get certain factors like growth factors which are very important in a bottle on a shelf. Whereas if we can, whereas when we take the blood from the patient, spin it down, um, you know, we can either do patient's own serum tears, which has growth factors. We could do platelet-rich plasma, plasma enriched with growth factors, even amniotic membrane contact lenses. We've published on a lot of this. Um, this really is a quantum difference improvement um, in patient symptoms who have been suffering with severe symptoms for, for, for years. And, you know, it's often been an overlooked area of ophthalmology, but, you know, because people say, okay, so dry eye, but you know, the example I think about is if you have a pebble in your shoe, you know, your heel is probably the toughest skin in your body. And yet every step you take, you irritate your heel with that little pebble in your shoe. It doesn't take long to you develop a blister and a really painful uh, lesion. And much in the same way, if you're living with chronic disease and that's dry eye, ocular surface disease, you know, the first couple of days, weeks, even if you're a stoic individual, you're not gonna complain too much. But if you're living with this on a chronic basis, day in and day out, it's very difficult and it really affects your life. And having dealt with this, I can tell you it affects the life of the 
of your loved ones and the people around you. So, um, you know, we will continue to explore these venues. Uh, we're working with a company from, from Spain now, looking at platelet enriched with growth factors, and we're doing a little study on it. We've, we've published our work on amniotic membrane. Um, we're putting together a study on, uh, you know, platelet enriched plasma. So all of these things are, are areas that we're working on to try to improve quality of life. No, I think that makes a, I have heard about this a little bit before, not about the blood, but about the amniotic membrane. Um, a friend of mine actually, who's been on the podcast uh, three or four times is an optometrist, Dr. Stephen McIntosh. And mm -hmm. um, he's a big proponent of exploring all these new ideas. And we, uh, we're supposed to have a you know casual get together and talk about, uh, you know, about life and family over a beer, and it led to a talk about dry eye. Um, so I, I did learn a lot. A very um, prevalent condition affecting yeah. many many people. Yeah. Now in the uh, in the stem cell uh, therapies that you're um, involved in, these cells are derived from. Are these the patient's own derived cells? Are these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells that are directed? I mean, I guess what are the sources of these cells that are used in in uh, in the therapies? Good question. So our first, you know, it, it depends on the nature of the illness. If it's a unilateral stem cell disease, for example, somebody was splashed in the eye with a chemical agent, but it only involved one eye, then the best approach would be to take stem cells from the contralateral eye and use them to repopulate. You, you know, then you would remove the damaged cells and you would use the stem cells from the other eye to repopulate the damaged eye with, with good stem cells. Now, the advantage of that is because you are using the patient's own tissue, you don't have to subject them to systemic immunosuppression. However, you know, as much as we'd like all of our cases to be that, and I've just been asked to participate in a study out of Laval, where they're looking at um, this exact situation, monocular disease, taking tissue from the other eye, a small little piece of tissue, much less than what we are using right now, and then growing that in a lab, expanding it, and then using that expanded tissue to treat the patient. Um, so I'm, I haven't started recruiting yet for this. I'm just in the process of, of, of you know, getting all the research uh, uh, infrastructure down. Now, if the uh, both eyes are involved, then unfortunately we cannot use stem cells from the patient. So we need to do one of two things, preferably, we ask the patient if there are any living related donors. And this, this has to go through a whole ethics committee procedure. So any donors um, then get matched to see who is most histocompatible with the patient, which reduces the amount of immunosuppression they need and also increases the chances of a take. And barring a, um, a living related donor, we then go to cadaveric, which is, you know, you need more systemic immunosuppression. So that's how, how it works. I did not realize that you could have a living donor for these stem cells. Like, so for, if I'm a, if I'm acting as a donor for somebody, 
what does that, and I don't want to dive into to this too much, but just, just scratch my own itch here. Uh, what, you know, what does that look okay. like for me? If I'm trying to donate to somebody, what, what are the risks involved for me or what, uh, you know, what does that look like for me? Good. I mean, good question. Um, so basically, uh, it's about a half an hour operation. We book both operations at the same time. And uh, what we do is we take a small sample of tissue, uh, limbal stem cell tissue from the donor. And this, this includes some of the conjunctiva and some of the, the tissue, what's called at the limbus, which is um, just the junction between the cornea and the conjunctiva. And then we, we would take two specimens of that and using a combination of tissue glue and stitches, we then apply that to the recipient. Okay, now that, uh, that makes sense. Um, so I just wanted to ask you maybe one more question um, around cornea external disease and then uh, dive into a couple of your uh, philanthropic efforts. Um, but the, and I guess maybe one can kind of lead into the other. Um, are there any geographic um, differences in the prevalence of specific corneal and external disease? And if so, um, what might be the explanation for some of those? Um, there, there are, they're not hugely impactful here, but for example, pterygium, I'm giving a talk on this at the American Academy in a, about two months. Um, and pterygium is a growth. It's affected by ultraviolet exposure. So um, it, it, we, we call the pterygium belt 20 degrees north and south of so there is a higher prevalence of this of pterygiums within this area. Now we see a lot in Toronto, a lot of it coming from you know people who've lived in, in more um, sun-exposed areas because one of the major contributing factors to the development of a pterygium is UV exposure. So pterygium might be one um, disease entity of the cornea of the ocular surface that can be affected by um, uh, latitude. Um, another one, I mean, certain corneal dystrophies, uh, because they are genetically inherited, may cluster in certain geographic areas, but it's not a major issue. Okay, no, that's, uh, I'm just, I'm just more <laughs> scratching my own itch, just curious on that. Sure thing. Um, now, just touching on geography. Uh, first of all, I, I like that you mentioned about you going to India for um, surgical training because uh, oftentimes people might think, hey, people are coming to the US or Canada or you know, uh, Western Europe for, um, for some of this training, but it's nice to see that it happens bilaterally. Um, also just to- uh, Sure, this yeah. individual, Varinder Sangwan was his name, is, is brilliant. And he developed a modified form of stem cell surgery which is being used all over the world. So it's, it's really interesting. The other interesting thing I, I should mention is um, uh, using artificial intelligence and deep learning. Um, that's one of the things that I think is, I'm, I'm getting involved with, I'm working with a company where believe it or not, we're, we're working on a um, artificial intelligence, deep learning process to, 
be able to diagnose COVID. So, um, I mean, think of it, it'll be an inexpensive thing. You can get it, you can, you know, on your, on your phone, it'll be a selfie. And before you get on the bus or before you get on the train or before you go to work, you could look at this and do about a one minute test. And we're trying to, we're trying to standardize this and it would give you the same reliability as a PCR test. So I actually took it myself because I was a little skeptical. And when I got COVID and it diagnosed me. So, um, and I think, I think this is just the beginning. I think we're gonna have a lot more artificial intelligence and deep learning in medicine. I think we're also gonna have gene therapy. Um, I mean, look at, look at what's happening with you know, the COVID vaccine, how fast we were able to develop it. And they're talking about you know, modifications of CRISPR and, and gene therapy to treat cancer. So there's no question, I think in the next decade, this is gonna have a tremendous influence on everything we do. No, that that's wild, right? Like that that technology, like you're you're highlighting, is uh, I, I guess it's it's wild, but it's also believable, right? It, we just oh yeah, technology. It's just an application of um, things that we realize are are becoming possible with you know computer vision technology and uh, you know the deep learning AI, machine learning, etc. So, yeah. um, I wanted to just uh, talk about you sent me a photo in an email um, yeah. about a trip to. Costa Rica, uh, and I don't think it was just for for fun and the sun and surfing and whatnot. But uh, maybe you can just elaborate on what you were doing in Costa Rica. Sure. So I'll, I'm going to just expound a little bit about what you said about fun. You know, I'm a strong believer that work should be fun, and I, you know, I've often said this to to my residents. You know, if I wasn't doing this for a living, I'd be doing this for a hobby. Um, so we have. A fellow I trained, his name is Randall Ulade, and he is one of their top ophthalmologists in Costa Rica. And he is involved, he's the program director for the university in San Jose, Costa Rica. And over the last five years, um, my friend, good colleague, and fabulous cataract surgeon and teacher, Amandeep Rai, he and I have made missions down to Costa Rica along with our residents. And last time we went, we included our fellow. And we go down there to teach. Um, we go down there to do surgery. We actually operate in Liberia, which is a hospital uh, I showed you the picture from. And it's, I was very, we were all, you know, this is I think the third or fourth time we were down there. And we were, all of us, it blew us away when we got to the operating room. Uh, that was the picture I sent you. There was a welcome sign over the opera over the entrance to the operating room with the flag of Canada and a flag of Costa Rica uh, included in, in the welcome sign. So we operate on patients. It's a blue zone. It's one of the few areas of the world where people live to a very ripe old age. And uh, we have the honor and privilege of working with my former fellow and um, his residents who were having come study with us, do a fellowship with us next year. Um, his name is Alonso Gutierrez. He's, he's gonna be coming and we're gonna be training him like we did with uh, Randall who's, who's down there now. 
And um, so we go down there and we teach, we operate, we learn from them. Plus we have a great time. We, 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 we really, um, we socialize with them. We, we, we basically live with them. And um, yeah, uh, we hope we're able to do some good. We hope we're able to represent Canada and our Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Toronto um, in, in a good light. Costa Rica is amazing. <laughs> so I've, I've been there uh, before too, and I have never, I've traveled quite a bit in my life and I've never tasted better coffee anywhere in the world than when I was right? in Costa, Co Co Costa Rica. And, you know, people think, oh, Brazil for coffee or uh, some of these places. And, you know, Brazil has great coffee too, but uh, Costa Rica, um, hands down, has been the best coffee I've ever had. <laughs> um, and uh, just the natural beauty yeah. of the natural yeah. beauty of the country, the vegetation and the warmth of the people everywhere you go, they're going Pura Vida, you know, which, yes. is, which is their comment. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's just beautiful. They accept you. Um, they really appreciate what you do. Um, and so we've been made to feel very welcome. Um, and the program's growing more and more. Like we now have some of our best oculoplastic surgeons uh, wanting to join us um, in Costa Rica. We've got more requests from residents and fellows. So we, we are in a position where we have to actually tone it down. Um, but uh, we, we just wanna make sure we deliver the quality we want and the care we want and not let it grow too quickly beyond which we can um, deliver the care that needs be be done. Oh, for sure. For sure. And if you ever need a podcast hosted from Costa Rica, just, just, just let me know. Cause I can hop on a plane and go, go to Costa Rica. Any, any excuse to go South. Um, so you, you, um, I want to talk maybe just about two more questions if that's okay. Sure. And, uh, one is also is again, in that philanthropic light, um, just some background researchers told me that you've been involved with, um, offering free eye exams for Syrian refugees. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that as well. Sure. You know, I think giving back is something that has been ingrained in me since I was a kid. And I hope that the same values um, reach out to my children. I think they have. So, um, you know, when the Syrian refugees came to Canada, Kensington and Sharif Eldafrawi and a group of other people put together the Syrian refugee outreach. And as soon as we heard about it, I said, I'm going. My wife heard that. She said, I'm going. My daughter heard that. And she was just getting ready to start medical school. And she said, I'm going. So the three of us went and we all gave what we could. Like, you know, I was able to fortunately provide uh, eye care, do eye exams and, and recommend treatment. We actually found people with glaucoma with pressures in their eyes that were off the wall. Um, so I think, you know, I think we were able to, to make a, a significant improvement in these patients, you know, but my daughter was able to get histories, you know, she couldn't talk the language and she could, you know, and I said, I said to her afterwards, how did you do that? And she said, you know, I learned nonverbal communication and I learned that just holding somebody's hand just seemed to calm them, reassure them that, that they were in the right place. And my wife was busy transporting people from room to room, for, you know, so it was something that we all did. It was a team effort. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it's something that we are so fortunate here in Canada. Uh, we have to recognize that um, 
we have this. We have the luxury of, of, of good healthcare. We have the luxuries of you know, not having to worry about, um, for the most part, where our next meal is coming from. And I think, I think it's incumbent on us to, to give back to the community that, that, fosters, that helps us. You know, I, I'm loving the, uh, the human side of medicine really coming through in, in everything that you're, you're talking about and everything that you do. And, um, but I do have a complicated question for you. And, and that is about balance. <laughs> so you seem to, you know, from, from the very beginning of our conversation, uh, talking about the multiple hats that you wear uh, with research and with um, clinical practice, and you know the the volunteering and philanthropy and it seems like you you know you're very close with your family and uh you know there's just so much going on in, in your life um how do you balance everything and and or or can you balance everything sean i think life is a balancing act you know we have so many demands competing demands on our time so I've struggled with this, to be honest with you, and I've thought about this a lot, you know, and I think what's what's helpful for me is to prioritize my demands and prioritize what's important for me. So, for example, when I, when I look at my own life, I say, first, my family comes first, then my professional life, and that includes patient care, uh, that comes second, and, and so on. My love of learning, I mean, that's my own personal uh, Life, lifelong objective, but there are many competing demands. And I think if you can prioritize what's important to you, it helps you make good decisions. And I think another thing within the, that framework is you got, you know, and I learned this from reading a book a long time ago called Seven Habits, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that's categorizing things as important and urgent. So not everything that is important is urgent. And I think urgent things have to come first. So in this way, I think it helps me to prioritize my, 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 my competing demands. Um, I won't say that I'm always successful, but I, I, I think to a large extent, I am able to, 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 to prioritize things and multitask. Um, but I, I think it's important to rebalance frequently. And the only other thing I would add to that is I think it's also important sometimes to step back and try to blue sky it and say, what is important? What, what's important to me? And are these things that I'm doing fitting into the pattern of what is important? Um, so, and I'm gonna circle right back to the beginning I think COVID was one of these blue sky moments for me. You know, I've had nothing but time on my hands for these past 10 days. I've been in isolation and it's, it's given me a pause to think I, I, you know, and rebalance. I have to say that I still have the same priorities. It's still my family first, my professional life second, my love of learning, let's say third, um, and it's, it's, it's caused me to think about what's important in my life because I may not always have them. I may get emotional here. I was sitting outside of my wife's room during this episode and I would wake up three, four times a night 
and listen to her to make sure she was breathing and not knowing if you're going to see your wife after 41 years, the morning was very tough. Sorry, I'm, I can't control this part of me, but it's given me pause to think. Oh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're, you know, you're, you're sharing that because I think it's, uh, you know, we've come full circle in the conversation and I'm, it, it's nice to, um, you know, to really emphasize that and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the impact that it it's had on you as someone who's had, uh, you know, obviously a wealth of success, uh, professionally, personally, um, that we're all still vulnerable. Um, and then, like you said, it puts a lot of things, um, into perspective. Uh, I love how you mentioned, um, the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, I think Stephen Covey was the author of that book. And he, if I remember correctly, I read this one quite, uh, quite some time ago when he had this matrix of things that were urgent, important, urgent, not important, you know, important and not urgent. I forget exactly all the squares in the matrix. I remember, uh, doing that, uh, that exercise and the, you know, and then we're looking at the things that are going on in your life and like, wait a minute, these things are not, not really urgent or they're not really important or they are. Right. And, uh, and it's I, ironically, that's the first book I ever read in Spanish too. And I was trying to teach myself Spanish, um, thinking about, uh, Costa Rica and whatnot. So, um, listen, I think we've, I've taken a lot of your time today. Uh, I feel there's a lot of, uh, directions we could go. I hope to maybe have you back again in the future, um, to talk about, uh, a number of other topics, if that's something you'd be willing to do. And, um, I'd be honored. Great. Well, listen, Dr. Solovic, thanks. Thanks so much for, for participating in the podcast today. It's, um, it's truly, truly been a pleasure. Thank you, Sean. It's been an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate.